13 minutes past 8 o'clock and uh, good morning and welcome to Henk Potts from Barclays. How are you, Henk? Good morning. Very well, thank you. It's lovely to be back in Monaco. Listen, I had a beautiful walk around the port from the Fairmont this morning. I was looking for my old friend, Sestelios. We normally have a wander in the, small, in the mornings, but he, he wasn't around, unfortunately, today. But listen, I thought Monaco is looking absolutely resplendent, isn't it? What an amazing job they've done at Casino Square. I saw the Hotel de Paris last night. It was looking absolutely fabulous. So listen, I think feels really feels like Monaco's in a good place. Sun is shining, there's, the summer's here, people are enjoying the yachts, and that's what life's about, right? It's Forget so about the turmoil of the global economy <laughs> and financial markets and worrying about all these things. Life still feels pretty good here. Well, as you just said, the yeah, global markets, and you're here, obviously, on business for Barclays. Uh, what are you doing? How long are you here for? What are you doing uh, exactly? Only today, unfortunately, which right. is the uh, bad news, but our global investment strategy team is in town, so we'll be delivering our mid-year outlook today, so, of course, taking clients through the journey of that turmoil of uh, the global economy and financial markets, talking about some of the risks and talking about some of the opportunities, of which there's quite a lot of both, it has to be said, so I think we'll have some lively discussions as we go through the course of the day, but certainly spending time with clients, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. Well, bearing in mind today, I mean, the top news story in business was that, you know, American and Asian markets are down. What's your economic outlook for the rest of the year, taking, uh, you know, on board the current situation? Sure, listen, I think it is a nervous time for investors, there's no doubt about that. And global growth forecasts have been coming down as the year has progressed. Russia's decision to invade Ukraine, of course, has compounded the intensification of COVID restrictions in China, surging price pressures, tightening financial conditions. I was going to say to create almost a perfect storm. It's probably exaggerating a little bit, but certainly the accumulation of those dark clouds has encouraged us to reduce our global growth forecast and perhaps, no surprise, push up our inflation projections. In terms of global growth, we think that will come in somewhere around about 2.9% during the course of this year. Well, that's a significant downgrade, you'll remember, to that 4.4% projection that we proffered back in January. Say, so, no surprise, inflation expectations have been rising. On a global basis, we think that inflation will average 6.4% during the course of this year, but then we think it will ease down during the course of 2023 to average 3.2%. But we still remain constructive around the outlook for the global economy. We think growth will continue to be underpinned by robust labour markets, by excess consumer savings, the recovery that continues to play out in terms of the service sector. We'd expect supply chains to gradually improve, commodities to eventually stabilise. And one bright spot is actually business investment. If you look at capital expenditure expectations, still remains very robust. Companies are spending money. They're investing on equipment and machinery in an effort to boost productivity. And we think that will be supportive of economic growth. And the other point really, I think, worth noting is we still think policymakers will have optionality during the course of 2023, particularly if inflation, as expected, does ease through the course of next year. We think that will take some of the intensity out of the hiking narrative that's clearly dominating markets at the moment and has done over the course of the past few months. And that, I think, will give them greater room to manoeuvre and that will reduce the risk of a policy mistake playing out and perhaps allow them to orchestrate a softer economic landing than many other economists have been suggesting at the moment. Because they refer to it as a bear market? 
Yeah, so what we've seen is, of course, a significant sell-off in terms of equity markets. Yesterday, we saw the S&P 500, I think, was down 3.9%. NASDAQ was down 4.7%. So we are in bear market territory, which means the uh, the index has fallen more than 20% compared to the recent peak. So that is a significant sell-off coming through. That's not to say it's not particularly unusual. You go through periods of time when, of course, this does happen. But there's lots of nervousness out there at the moment. I think investors are in Indeed, nervous around the geopolitical tensions. They're worried, of course, around this surging inflation and the impact that's going to have in terms of policy. But from our perspective, I think there are still reasons to be, I think, optimistic and stay invested in terms of markets. Global growth, we're talking about holding up reasonably okay. Valuations, of course, significantly cheaper today than they've been over the course of the past few months. I think if you look at global equities, they're trading below a 15 times forward price earnings multiple. The 10-year average is 15.4. Remember, they were trading at 20 times back in September of last year. If you look at analyst expectations, earnings growth still remains very robust. Analysts are anticipating earnings per share growth this year, somewhere around about 11%. Of course, that's continuing to be held up somewhat by energy, but putting that to one side, you're still seeing strong earnings growth, another 8% as you look through the course of 2023. So corporate earnings still look pretty good. So I think there are reasons to be optimistic in terms of not only the economic outlook, but what it means in terms of investors. Because the last time, was it not a COVID pandemic at the beginning? Was it when it, when it fell by a third, I, I think? did it? The... Yeah, we saw big falls in terms of equity markets as a, uh, in the early days, of course, of the pandemic. But and I think this is a point worth making. We saw a very strong recovery from that as well. And we should remember the global economy and financial markets are incredibly resilient. If you think what we've been through over the past few decades, we've been through recessions, we've been through depressions, we've been through world wars, we've been through pandemic. Growth is a default setting for the global economy. Risk assets perform well over time. But that's an important thing. The time horizon is already always incredibly important when looking at equity market investments. You can't look at it over the course of the space of a few months. The reality is an equity market investment is five years plus. Okay, and what impact, I mean, you just mentioned, you know, the war in Ukraine, what's, what impact has that had on your forecasts and which regions are the most vulnerable? Well, listen, the war in Ukraine sent a shockwave through the global economy. There's no doubt about that. It's been described as the biggest security issue in Europe since the Second World War. As we know, it has huge ramifications in terms of the global order. From a macroeconomic perspective, of course, Europe continues to be the most vulnerable region. We think it's vulnerable from a multi-channel perspective. That includes, of course, energy markets, but it goes beyond that, includes... um, a policy includes banking, trade. The hardest one probably to gauge is what it's doing in terms of confidence levels. Economists, of course, have been focusing on what it means in terms of energy. Quite rightly so. If you remember back in 2021, Europe imported 155 billion cubic metres of gas from Russia. That equated to around about 40% of its consumption. 25% of its petroleum products also came from Russia. And those Ukrainian pipelines are a key supply routes. They account for around about a third. So there's obviously valid concerns about damage to infrastructure, but also how much gas will flow through those pipelines, particularly after Russia cut off, as we saw Bulgaria and Poland over the course of the past few weeks. And alongside that, or on the other side of the equation, 
You've got European policy makers pushing for an embargo on Russian oil, a phased embargo perhaps over the course of the next six months. And we know that persistently high commodity prices has a significant impact in terms of industrial production, household disposable income, and eventually in terms of corporate profitability. And the other area to focus on beyond energy, of course, is soft commodities. Now, we know that Russia and Ukraine produce vast quantities of wheat, of sunflower oil, of, of corn, in fact, between them, they account for about 10% of globally traded calories. And Russia is also the world's largest producer of fertilizers, whether that's potash or nitrogen fertilizers, that allow farmers around the world to improve their yields. So you see disruption in those areas, of course, having a significant impact. We've been talking about in terms of inflation projections, but it goes beyond that. It's about food security and it's about social stability, particularly in terms of the developed world. And is there any hope that price pressures will maybe moderate over over the next year? We do think that will be the case. Remember, we've been saying this, central bankers have been saying this for some time to come. It hasn't come to fruition, it has to be said. But there are a number of factors to believe that will be the case, partly due to technical factors, partly due to base effects. But I think if you look at the level of spare capacity in many economies, still remains high today compared to where we were before the recession. Supply chains, we think, will improve as companies overcome logistical constraints and capacity increases. I suppose the cap- caveat to that is what's taking place in China as they continue to pursue that zero COVID strategy. We think participation rates in labour markets will improve. The medical outlook is looking an awful lot better today. Furlough programmes have finished. Those extended unemployment benefits during the course of the pandemic have been scaled back. Schools have reopened and that's allowed parents to go back to work. So we think that will slowly improve and that will take some of the heat out of wage inflation. But also think about the shape of the recovery. We know the recovery has very much been focused on goods. We've already started to see it, but we think it will continue that rebalancing in terms of services, and that will take some of the pressure off goods. And then there's the structural, the technology uh, technology investment that's been taking place during the course of the pandemic, digitalization of the economies. We think that will keep price pressures muted in the future. So where are we in terms of inflation today? I think inflation will peak over the course of the coming months. In saying that, Inflation is still likely to be above the target level in many of the key regions, and that's likely to keep some of the pressure, some of the pressure on central bankers. Okay, but uh, in your view on the US economy and what we can expect from the Federal Reserve, uh, because at the moment, like, the dollar is surging. How, how can that be, that the dollar is surging and, and the Federal Reserve, how, 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 how it's going to affect maybe imports sure. and exports, and also whether you're moving with interest rates going up, do you shift money from lower to higher places sure, for better interest rates? It's a really interesting debate taking place, I think, in terms of that. If you look at foreign exchange markets to pick up on that point, I think they're currently being driven by risk aversion, but they're also being driven, of course, by interest rate predictions, growth rate projections with an overlay of investment flows. Now, clearly that's positive for the US dollar. US dollar has been very strong. The dollar index, I think, has been trading its highest level in 20 years over the course of the past couple of weeks. It's up around about 9% year to date. And we think the dollar will continue to be strong, I think, during the course of this year as those conditions continue to play out. In the medium term, there is room for dollar depreciation, one would suspect, from these levels. You could argue the dollar is starting to look over 
overvalued. Markets have probably fully priced in the full range of the Fed hiking cycle. We can, we can come on to that. And there will be a narrowing in terms of that economic outperformance that you see from the United States was will eventually put pressure on the dollar as some of those risk elements start to stabilize. On the other side of the trade, of course, you've got the likes of the euro. The euro, of course, has been struggling, as we've been talking about, as the war continues to overhang uh, the growth prospects, I think, in Europe. We've seen a reticence till recently from the European Central Bank to talk about normalizing policy. Of course, we're now moving into that area. We've seen a dramatic change from the ECB over the course of the past couple of weeks as they now start to embark on taking rates positive, we think, over the course of the next few months. That should be positive, one suspects, for the euro. Sterling, we think, will um, continue to benefit from higher rates. We expect further rate hikes. Bank of to hike rates actually on Thursday, another one in uh, in August, taking rates up to 1.5%. And strong demand for UK assets will be positive, I think, for sterling as well. But then we see a deterioration in terms of the UK's growth prospects that I think will keep some of, um, some of those gains perhaps a little bit capped. In terms of our official forecast, I think at the end of the first quarter of next year, we've got euro dollar at 110, got pound against the dollar 126, you got uh, euro sterling at 0.87. And one last question before we just take a break for the news. Uh, talking about the US economy, how concerned are you about the slowdown in China? I think we are concerned about the slowdown in China. It's been a dramatic uh, reduction in terms of the China's growth profile. If you look at the first quarter, it seems some time ago now, but growth was 4.8%. That's significantly weaker than the 18%, of course, that was recorded in the first quarter of 2021. Of course, that's when the recovery phase was continued to play out. The slowdown in China, of course, has been driven by its pursuit of its zero COVID strategy, the slump that we've seen in terms of the property market and, of course, the impact of the regulatory crackdown that's been taking place, particularly in terms of the technology sector. What we do know is this pursuit of zero COVID has come as an economic cost. We get further figures from China tomorrow. But if you look back at April, retail sales slumped 11%. Unemployment's been rising in China now up to 6.1%, which is the highest that we've seen since May 2020. So we think it's going to be tough for China. China doesn't have the same inflation problem that you see elsewhere, and that's allowed policymakers to reduce rates, to reduce the reserve requirement ratios, to relax some of the credit policies as well, and that will help, I think, to stimulate growth. China's got an official growth target of 5.5% during the course of this year. We don't think we'll get anywhere near to that. We think something closer to 3.3% is more likely. Remember, China's the world's second largest economy but it's also very important in terms of supply chains and that's part of the reason why we've downgraded our, our global growth forecast for this year. Hank Potts from Barclays, uh, new sport and weather is next and then we'll uh, go back to talk to Hank. Barclays Private Bank brings you Riviera Radio Business News on 106.5 FM. At Barclays our size is your strength and we've been using the entire reach of the Barclays Group to bring a global perspective and unique investment opportunities to our clients in Monaco since 1922. To find out more, search Barclays Private Bank or call the Monaco Private Banking Team on 9315 3535. 
finally get to the age of 53 and some of us might think we're past our prime. But researchers have said that the actual age when we feel at our sexiest is 53. A 4 in 10 of 53-year-olds said they were more comfortable in their own skin and confident about their looks than ever before, according to the recent survey. You're up to date. The news is available on our website, rivieradio.mc, and you can check out our Facebook page, 106.5 of Riviera Radio. Well, you're not even there yet, are you, Hank? Morning, Hank. <laughs> Looking forward to the next few years. I'm 48, so I've still got some fantastic years ahead of me, just as I was thinking everything was in decline. Happy days will be amongst us once again. They certainly will be. Uh, Hank Potts is with me this morning uh, from Barclays in Monaco for a few days, busy, well, one day, uh, in and out as usual. Uh, we left on the slowdown in China. Uh, moving on to, to Europe, do you think there will be a recession in Europe? What do you think the chances are? Well, listen, I think hopes of a vigorous recovery in Europe at the start of the year have clearly been ruined, as we've been talking about, by the ramifications of the war in Ukraine. The supply bottlenecks from China have obviously been impacting the uh, European manufacturing sector. We know that record inflation has also been having an impact in terms of household demand. So you put that through, and I think there is real risk of a technical recession in Europe, I think, at the turn of the year. We've certainly reduced our growth forecast for 2023, looking at rather anemic economic growth just half of one percent coming through inflation obviously a problem in the eurozone it reached a record high of 8.1 percent in april it's been driven up by higher food and fuel prices amongst other things of course and we think that uh, inflation will continue to rise over the course of the next few months in fact we only tentatively think that inflation in the eurozone will peak around about eight and a half percent so despite the fact that we've got weakening economic conditions the european central bank have decided or certainly signalled that the era of negative interest rates will come to an end over the course of the next few months. So they've certainly signalled they'll hike rates by a quarter of 1% in the July meeting. They've also unusually pre-committed to hiking interest rates, of course, in September by at least 25 basis points. We think it's likely probably to be higher than that, maybe half of 1%. We've also got a further quarter of 1% penciled into October. So where does that take us? Well, that gets you to the deposit rate of half of 1% uh, by the time that we get through the October meeting. Unlike probably many of the other market participants, we think the European Central Bank will pause at that point, given our weaker growth forecast, given the fact that inflation should start to be easing back after that point. We think that uh, that will be enough in terms of uh, the path of policy for the European Central Bank, but still very much determining, determined by um, what happens in terms of inflation. If inflation continues to spiral out of control, if there's a de-anchoring of inflation expectations, if there's a wage spiral that plays out, that'll put more pressure, one would suspect, on the central bank and have more an impact in terms of that growth forecast. And how much does the politics affect the markets, like what's going on in the UK uh, with the current Prime Minister and here in France, you know, they're voting the second round of the parliamentary elections. Uh, there's talk that if, if the left side, if it was Prime Minister uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, you know, he's very far left. Uh, just on a, I have no idea, but how would changes in a political uh, setup 
affect the markets? Does it happen immediately it, it, or does it, it... It can have an impact and markets tend to look forward and they tend to price these things in. So if we were to see a change, it's not necessarily the, the, the people, it's really around the policies, of course. Now, if you were to see a more expansive fiscal policy coming through, that may be good news in trying to promote growth, but it does have implications in terms of inflation projections and therefore puts more pressure in terms of central bankers. So I think economists are constantly reviewing the political environment, trying to understand the direction in terms of policy, more the impact it's going to have on terms of those fundamentals, what that means in terms of monetary policy, and then, of course, the corresponding impact in terms of market conditions. And the UK economy appears to be facing a number of headwinds. Are these enough to stop the recovery, do you think? Well, listen, I think the UK was a really strong performer during the course of the recovery phase. Remember, it led the developed world during the course of 2021 with growth of more than 7%. As we've seen recently from the data that the UK economy has been stalling, and we think that will continue to be the case over the course of the next 18 months. The UK economy faces up to higher levels of inflation, higher interest rates, tight labour, Markets. I see unemployment data coming in this morning shows UK unemployment at 3.8%, which is obviously very low. But it's really the vacancy rates that continue to be a problem in the UK. There's 1.3 million jobs that are available that can't be filled, and that poses a problem in terms of the growth profiles. So partly that is a reflection in terms of Brexit conditions, but we see tight labour markets elsewhere in the world, it has to be said. But also you've got this rapidly increasing tax burden playing out in terms of the UK. So the government's already announced or uh, enacted increases in terms of the corporation tax, the dividend tax, national insurance contributions, the freezing of tax thresholds for higher taxpayers as well. You put that all together and what does it tell you? Well, it tells you that uh, that uh, the tax burden in the UK rises from 33% of GDP in 2019-2020 up to around about 36% of GDP by the time that we get to 2017. 2018. Now, to put that in some sort of context for you, that's the highest rates that we've seen since the 1940s. If you listen to the Office for Budget Responsibility, they talk about real incomes in the UK falling by 2.2 percentage points during the course of this year. Now, that's the biggest fall that we've seen since records began back in 1956. So, we hear these headlines around the cost of living crisis that's playing out in the UK. And there's some very clear examples about what that means in terms of reality. So in terms of inflation in the UK, of course, it hit 9% of course in April. Um, we think it will continue to rise, particularly when you take into account the off-gem price increases in terms of the energy caps. We got it at 10% around October. We don't think we'll live with double-digit inflation for too long. We think that'll be a spike and it will start to ease back. Perhaps more importantly than that, we do have UK inflation above the 2% target all the way throughout our forecast horizon out to 2025. And that'll keep some of the pressure, we think, on the bank. And so as I said before, we expect a hike on Thursday, another one in August, taking UK rates to 1.5%. But, but then some of that growth profile starts to falter and we think that will eventually take some of the wind out of the tightening sails in terms of, uh, of UK policy. But I think a, a rough ride for, for, for the UK economy over the course of the next year and a half.
How should maybe the investors be positioned for the rest of this year and into 2023? Yeah, it's a good question. We're talking about what a nervous time it is for investors. And I think at this point, it's really uh, serious to be focusing on some of the fundamental principles around investing about number one. I think we have three clear messages. Number one being the importance of being and staying invested. We know that housing and outside cash position comes at a cost, particularly when inflation is high, but also, of course, in terms of foregone returns. Every year Barclays produces an equity guilt study and it shows you the performance of asset classes over a prolonged period of time. The data actually goes back to 1899 and what that data shows you if you were to invest £100 in cash back then in nominal terms it would be worth £21,000 today. If you invest that money in government bonds i.e. guilt it would be worth around about £47,000 today. If you invest that money in the stock market reinvesting the dividends perhaps all good investors should. Do you know how much it'd be worth? <laughs> I should have done it in 18. <laughs> 2.9 million no. pounds. Significant outperformance. I spend a lot of time saying this with clients. They say, Hank, that's wonderful. The only problem is I don't have a 130 year time horizon. But interestingly enough, if you break down the data, what it also shows you is in any two year period, the chance of equity outperforming cash is 69%. If you take it up to 10 years, the chances of outperforming is 91%. So it's an important message around time in the market rather than trying to time the market. Being and staying invested, I think, is incredibly important. Listen, I said it's a nervous time for investors. We looked at the major conflicts going back to, I think it was Pearl Harbor, actually, and the performance of stock markets after that. If you look at the S&P 500, I think six months after the start of a conflict, it was up around about 5.5%. 12 months after it was up around about 8.6%. So a reminder, I say financial markets are incredibly resilient. So number one, being and staying invested, incredibly important. I think active is far more important at the moment. You've got to be investing in... Uh, companies that have specific characteristics. We continue to focus on quality growth and companies with pricing power. What does quality growth mean? It means companies that have got fortress balance sheets, some companies that have conservative capital structures, but it goes beyond that for us. It's about companies that are cash generating businesses, but able to reinvest that cash back into the business, generate the same level of return. So I think active is far more important. And the third message, and it continues to be important, is around diversification. The best way to navigate political and economic uncertainty is through a fully diversified portfolio. So that's diversified across geographical regions. It's diversified across asset classes as well. But we should also, I think, remember that we're probably like to see more muted returns from public markets in the future compared to what we've seen in the past. So it's also about broadening your investment horizons. It's about having a partner that can offer you opportunities in terms of private assets to offer you opportunities in terms of hedge funds with uncorrelated investment strategies. That's how you're going to boost your returns. That's how I think you're going to navigate through some of this political and economic uncertainty. To look at it long term. and, and to Long term yeah. is really, really important, Ooh. particularly when it comes to equity market investment. So, of course, you need liquidity there to meet your day-to-day -day responsibilities. Most people, in reality, probably the biggest challenge we have with clients is how much cash that they own, quite frankly, because they they hoard huge amounts of cash that they clearly won't need in 
next two, three, five, ten years, quite frankly, and that money should be invested, particularly, of course, when inflation is high. But you, what you don't want to be, of course, is a forced seller in terms of equity markets, because we've seen over the course of the past few months, they can be quite violent at times. They can uh, sell off quite aggressively, but that's only important to you if you're forced to sell out at that point. And the outlook for FX markets? Yeah, we've mentioned a little bit around foreign exchange markets already. That dollar strength coming through, I think, will continue to be the theme during the course of this year. But then we start to say, as I've been talking about, some depreciation in terms of the dollar. We start to see conditions normalise and an equalising of such economic and uh, monetary policy conditions elsewhere. And uh, run out of time already, but last question, we'll just end on this, Hank. It's been a rough ride for cryptocurrencies. and It's now the time to invest? (laughs) Dear me. Well, I think it's been an interesting ride. I mean, you talk about the volatility we've seen in equity markets, that compares nothing to to the cryptocurrency space. And Bitcoin, of course, is the classic example. Remember, Bitcoin was around $87,000, sorry, $67,000 back in November of last year. I look at the prices on the screen today, it's closer to $22,000, which I think is interesting because lots of people that were promoting Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies were saying, listen, it's a hedge against inflation. It's a portfolio diversifier. It's the one way in which Russia will be able to overcome some of the sanctions. Well, if that is the case, when surely these cryptocurrencies should be absolutely booming rather than sinking, I think, at the moment. Listen, you'll know that we've been cautious around cryptocurrencies for a long time. It's a currency... It's not backed by an economy. It's not regulated by a central bank. It's um, not proved to be a reliable store of value. It's certainly limited in terms of a medium of exchange for where you can spend it. It's an investment. Well, remember, it doesn't generate any cash flows. It doesn't pay a coupon. It doesn't pay a dividend. So it's incredibly difficult to value. People talk about gold as being similar to that, but gold does have a, an alternative use. Half of gold is used for jewellery, for example. It's used in the technology sector. Alongside that, I think our concerns around cryptocurrency is the outsized volatility, the lack of transparency, the lack of security. We've seen lots of digital wallets that have been hacked in the past. It's been almost impossible for people to get to get their money back. What we do believe in, and I'll finish on this point, is we do believe in blockchain, which is the underlying technology. We think that is the industry standard for supply chains, for uh, data keeping, for third-party transactions. And I think investing in companies that are developing and using that is a much better, much uh, safer way to be placing your money rather than putting it into cryptocurrencies. Okay, we'll end on that. I feel exhausted. (laughs) I won't be able to do the client meetings now. (laughs) Oh, aren't you going for lunch in the sun now? (laughs) I'll walk back through the port and uh, maybe grab a few rays before uh, hitting the office. Hank Potts from Barclays, thanks for coming in, Hank, and we'll speak to you. You'll be back in London tomorrow morning. uh, I'll be in Geneva tomorrow, but I'll be with you back later in the week. Okay, Hank Potts from Barclays, thank you. Pleasure.